Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperiti. Today, I'll be talking to Professors Wando Achebe and Claire Robertson about their 2019 edited volume, Holding the World Together, African Women in Changing Perspective. Holding the World Together was published in 2019 by the University of Wisconsin Press as part of its Women in Africa and the Diaspora series. So let me briefly introduce our two guests. Wando is the Jack and Margaret Sweet Endowed Professor of History at Michigan State University. She is the founding editor of the Journal of West African History. Her books include 2005's Farmers, Traders, Warriors, and Kings, Female Power and Authority in Northern Igbo Land, 1900-1960, and a just-published Female Monarchs and Merchant Queens in Africa for which I believe she'll soon be recording another MBN interview, so stay tuned for that. And Claire is a professor emerita of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University. This book is in fact her eighth, joining other volumes such as Sharing the Same Bowl, which won the ASA's Herskovitz Award in 1985, Transnational Sisterhood and Genital Cutting, Disputing U.S. Polemics, co-edited with Stanley James, and Women and Slavery in Africa, co-edited with Martin Klein. So with this introduction, Wando and Claire, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. It's really a pleasure. I'd, I'd like to begin by asking each of you how you initially came to study the lives and history of African women. And you both came to the topic uh, as part of different generations. So, Claire, I wondered if you could discuss how you came to this topic since you started doing your fieldwork in the 1970s when almost no one else was studying African women. Thank you for, the, for that question. I began uh, early on, simply my dissertation work was on market women in Ghana and um, it was a controversial topic at the time. No one had really worked on African women. I guess I ended up finding out it was the first dissertation on the history of African women in the U.S., done in the U.S., okay? Anyway, so, um, and I just continued from there, and I got particularly interested in life history work, and so that the Bowl book had life histories, women's life histories in it, some life histories, and I've continued with that, and I've published one book that is all women's life history life histories. And so then continuing into the future, of course, I've taught courses on African women over my whole career. And um, it's helpful to have a textbook. And so I re- we realized, Nwando and I realized that it's been a long time since I think someone tried it. It's difficult to do a textbook. And so, and especially since the research on African women has simply exploded, much to my delight. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and so um, we decided to do another text and trying to make it as diverse as possible um, in terms of both the contributors and the topics studied and including things that other texts did not. But anyway, so that's how I got to where we are. And actually, I have another book since that one, and it's about oral history in St. Lucia. It's oral histories of St. Lucians in the Caribbean. Anyway. And Wando, how did you come to study the lives of African women? <laughs> I came to the study of uh, African women's history uh, through a very, I would say, roundabout way. Um, I had no interest in history when I was younger. <laughs> My first degree was um, in theater arts, um, theater, music, and dance. And frankly speaking, I wanted to be an actress. Um, I wanted to be a director. And uh, after I graduated um, 
from my first degree in 1991, um, I took a gap year. And during that time, I realized that I didn't want to wait tables. <laughs> I wanted to um, do an MFA in acting and directing. That's what I really wanted to do. But there weren't any programs where I could do an MFA in those two areas. They were extremely specialized. You either did an MFA in acting or it would be in directing or it was in costume design, but I couldn't combine these things. And so when I went to UCLA in 1992, I went there to study film. I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And I went there to study with the late Tushami Gables, who was the only Africanist filmmaker at um, UCLA. Unbeknownst to me, he was on sabbatical when I arrived, and it was just a two-year program. And here I was at UCLA stuck. Um, and, you know, at that moment in time, I decided, you know what? If you want to produce good African documentaries, you've got to know the history of the people on whom you want to be, produce these documentaries on. And so it was very reluctantly that I walked into my first African history class. And that class was taught by uh, Professor Boniface Obichera, the late Boniface Obichera. And I remember sitting in front of the class in that first row and I was captivated. I was captivated because here was this man, this African griot, really sort of reciting the history of my people. And even though the class was on the Atlantic slave trade, so it wasn't as though I was that connected to the groups of peoples that he was talking about, I really felt like he was telling my story. And it was a story that had a beginning, middle, and an end. It was a story that I could recognize myself in. And really, that was the beginning of my love affair with African history. Why African women's history? I decided at that moment to study the history of my people. And as I tried to figure out what aspect of African history do I want to um, specialize in, some of my professors tried to expose us to um, readings on African women's history. And at the time, those readings were extremely problematic. I remember being asked to read uh, Kinsman's Beast of Burden and the Subordination of Swan and Women. Um, and I remember sitting in class and wondering, who the heck are these beasts of burden that she's talking about? You know, how dare you call me, my mother, my grandmother, a beast of burden? And what really sort of got me was I wasn't just mad at what it was this author was saying. I had a problem with the fact that the evidence that she was using to come up with this interpretation was evidence that I would look at and come up with a totally different interpretation. You know, I felt that the fact that Swan and women carried themselves carry their babies on their backs and went to farm did not make them beast of burden. All African women were, they've always worked. And so it was at that moment that I decided that it wasn't enough to get angry. That if I wanted to, instead of getting angry, that I needed to sit back and write my own history. Write a history in which I could see myself in. Write a history in which African women like me could read and see themselves in that history. And so that really was the beginning of my deciding that this is what I wanted to do. And this is the audience that I wanted to do it for. So that's, yeah, that's how I decided to, to work on African women's history. So Could I add something? Do I add something? Okay, so I come out of the late, politically out of the late 60s, basically, of the anti-war movement. And I've always been interested in the breaking of stereotypes. And I had some of the same feelings that uh, Nwando did, not as an African woman, woman obviously. But I thought um, I'm interested in voices for those who've been voiceless in sort of Western literature and, uh, and academia. 
And at that time, that was very much the case for African women. There were no African women, basically, who were teaching in academia in the 1970s, basically, almost none. So a few African-American women, very few. And there was that. And it was just, so the life history work, to me, um, is about giving voice to the voiceless, because many, most of the people I have interviewed and wrote, written about have not been literate. They were older people who didn't have the opportunity, not literate in a Western language anyway. Um, and so I thought I would, to, to this day, that's, that's one of my main interests in, in the study of African women. So give our listeners a sense of how the field has developed since, let's say, the 1970s until now, and why now felt like a critical moment to put together this volume. Wanda's turn. Well, um, for me, from the 1970s, um, there are certain women scholars in my mind that gave the generations after them, I like to say gave us the permission um, to be able to tell African women's and gender histories and tell them in the manner in which we've, you know, started, which we're telling them. Um, and that particular generation was certainly, uh, you know, I would say um, Claire's generation, Susan Geiger. Um, these are women, when I personally look back, and think about what are the best ways in which to tell these histories. You know, uh, Claire talked about life histories as being so important, being so instrumental in telling the history of the voiceless. Um, I would say that starting around the 1990s, really, is when there was this explosion of new, critical, wonderful work on African women, right? A lot of them were life histories. You had a series of life histories starting from the three Swahili women, right? Claire Robinson's own work. Um, there were a number of scholars that essentially, you know, paved the way for us, for my generation that came after, to be able to do the kind of histories that we do. Um, whether it be um, using the life history method, right, to tell the history of African women, but also sort of reaching out and using um, a very um, rich kind of methodology. You know, I like to say that sometimes when people look at my methodology, it's not just life histories, it's, it's proverbs, it's songs, it's, it's poetry, it's, it's cloth, it's cloth history, it's jewelry. You know, I'm not doing that to be sexy. I'm doing that because, you know, um, you know, in a field where using the traditional archive has not been good enough to uh, sort of reveal the kinds of histories that we're trying to uncover, those of us that do this work have necessarily had to sort of look to other means in which to piece together this history of African women. And so, you know, when I look at the field in general, I mean, it started, like I said, in my, in my, um, in my experience of, of the field, you know, I, I talked to you about what were the kinds of readings that we were being exposed to in the 90s, right? Um, the field has exploded since then, right? And, you know, if you look at the field from, you know, you had an era where people were just simply trying to uncover women's worlds. You had an era where people were talking about elite women, right? And then sort of trying to document the everyday lives of everyday women, right? So this field has become extremely rich and diverse, moving from all of that to talking about same-sex desires in Africa, right? There's so much that we are doing right now 
in the field of not only African women's history, but African gender history, right? That is just so magnificent that I couldn't have imagined was even possible in the 1990s. And, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be right now. Exactly. Um, and part of it is history as a discipline has just exploded in many different directions interdisciplinarily. Uh, and African studies and women's studies are both interdisciplinary fields and always have been. And to me, that is very freeing, liberating. Um, history envelops everything in the whole world. It can be contemporary. It can be ancient. It can be whenever. And um, I had a major professor, Jan van Sina, at the University of Wisconsin, who pioneered oral history methods. But his methods, I have to say, were a bit limited. They, he was interested in a particular kind of very old history. And so I wanted to help open up um, more contemporary history. I worked in 20th and now 21st century history. And um, I just think that you can do anything with history. Um, you can study anything you want, everything in the world. Wanda is ideally qualified because of her interest in theater and so on um, to do interdisciplinary things. I think everyone who does African history draws, most people draw on all kinds of sources. And um, there was somebody who was doing a history of folk medicines in Nigeria, in southern Nigeria, Yoruba folk medicines, and who was cooking these up on her own um, and had her, all her Nigerian neighbors thinking she was a witch. But anyway, because she was doing that. She haunted what was called the witchcraft market. But anyway, to get the, the, uh, the ingredients. So, you know, you can do anything you want. And I think that's very liberating. And I like that. And I particularly like giving voice to the voiceless. When we took and give the ethical um, imperative to share your results with the people you study. Okay. So when we took the St. Lucian books back to St. Lucia and gave one, to each family of the elderly people we had interviewed, most of them had died by then, people were in tears because they don't have their history. And this was giving them their history. You know, I, I would like to just comment on that last point, Claire, that, that giving back, right? For me, it's about um, returning right, to the place that you've done research. It's about presenting your work to the community and allowing the community, community to talk back. That was one of the issues for me with the early stuff that sort of um, looked at African women as beasts of burden, as, as people who were sold to the highest bidder for their reproductive and, 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 and productive labor, right? Um, for me, I take that, uh, uh, that, that charge extremely seriously. And so in all my work, I present my work back to the community and allow them to critique, allow them to talk back. You know, I, I remember one instance very early on in my research where I was interviewing a Christian woman about women's power. And I didn't realize that I had entered the field with an agenda. It was an unarticulated agenda. But she was the one who pushed me to realize that that was actually what I had done because I had asked her the simple question about, you know, how did she learn about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be powerful? And I remember her, you know, looking at me and saying, everything I know about what it means to be a woman, everything I know about what it means to be powerful, I learned from the Christian church. And, you know, at that point, I was just sort of like, in my mind, I am not using this interview because it goes against everything that I am planning, you know, that I'm thinking of arguing. But you know what? As I was saying that to myself internally, this woman, Lady Obai, asked me to, because this was a period of when we're still using tape recorder, so I'm dating myself. She said, turn off the tape recorder. And she looked at me and she said, I did not go to school. I cannot read. I need you to tell me what it is that you you heard me say. Said because all of you book people, I want to make sure that what you're going to write in that book of yours is what I have actually said. 
and I heard myself parroting back what it was that she had said, which I hadn't, which I didn't believe at the point, right? But I was parroting it back to her. And I saw her whole countenance change. And she takes me, my two hands in her, in her hands, and she says to me, so she said, my daughter, you have proven to me that you will represent me the way that I represent myself. She said, turn your tape back on. Now the interview can really begin. And I sat with Lady Obai for four more hours. She was telling me all about her life. She was singing. She was dancing. She was performing her history. And that moment in time taught me that I not only had to listen, but I had to hear and leave all of these preconceived ideas out of the interview process and the interpretation process. It was actually a moment in time that allowed me to solidify my method, which is something that I used from that point on to now, where I actually look back to my community and ask for them to interpret their own lives for me as well. This thing that you said, what, what do you mean by it? This is my understanding of what you've just said. Is this, am I representing you the way that you represent yourself? So that's important as well. Well, I was hoping as we went along in the interviews, the many interviews, um, that you get some of that reflexivity as you go along, leaving a lot of space for that. Um, and then also, I had because you have a great advantage over me in language, and as a cross check, I always had I always had an interpreter with me um, because I didn't trust my knowledge of local languages, um, some of which I understood and some I did not understand well enough. But anyway, um, and the cro one of the cross checks was having people translate the recordings, um, and. So I could compare that with my notes um, to try and get it, what was really said, and allowing space within the interviewing, as you were talking about, about people to react to this and um, to say what they were thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I tried to, in the one book I did that's all only one life history, I had little sidebars where I was having other people's opinions, local mm -hmm. people's opinions, relatives, and so on and also information about the situation in which she was, sort of what the hospital was like, uh, different kinds of things like that, um, to try and give other sort of information about what was going on in this interview, about what was being referred to and stuff like that. I don't know if it worked, but um, it, it worked was an experiment. It marvelously, yeah. It's about negotiate, negotiating meaning, right? We constantly yep. negotiate meaning. Right. So I think what you are both talking about is the power of interpretation and interpretation coming from different perspectives, which um, is really one of the strengths of African women's gender studies, which you say in the introduction has really contributed to rethinking categories that the literature, the field, broader historical profession tends to take for granted. I wondered if you could um, elaborate on these categories that the study of African women and gender history has has really posed differently for uh, for readers and for historians. And maybe Claire, we begin with you. Well, I'm very proud of my very first book, uh, which was actually not the Bowl book, but it was that actually the Women and Slavery in Africa book which actually was also Wisconsin Press, so we begin and sort of end with the same press. But in any case, um, and when we did that book, uh, there was one, only one book on women and slavery in the U.S. There was no book on women and slavery in Africa or no information about it. And there was a lot of, but there were a fair number of researchers who had some, uh, had information about it, including one of Nwando's professors, Ned Alpers, anyway, and um, 
All right, so we compiled this thing, and I realized when I was reading all the contributions, I realized that the study of women in slavery in Africa broke many stereotypes, and I love that. And one of those stereotypes, I insisted that there be one section in there, actually over the objections of my co-editor, I insisted on including the section on women as slave owners, because African women, unlike most Western women, have independent property rights, West African women in particular, uh, coastal West African women. And women owned and were often whatever the society, because of the gender division of labor, women were often the primary users of slaves, um, because most of the slaves kept in Africa were women. But that was not the same kind of slavery as in the U.S. So we had to talk about non-chattel slavery. U.S. slavery was chattel slavery of the worst sort. And slavery had many gradations in Africa. And then you had the situation with a fair number of women owning slaves and many women using slaves. And it was a whole situation of gradations. It was very unlike chattel slavery for the most part. And so that broke a lot of stereotypes. And the book got a lot of play because of, of first, because of, um, and also among Americanists, which surprised me. But Americanists were reading, people who were doing women, American women's history were reading it, and American women's history was just taking off. But anyway, um, so that, the, the situation about, empower, about women who are empowered within their societies was what I wanted to be included in that. And I know Nwando agrees with me about this. It's just something that, as she was talking about how uh, in American, including in American feminist literature, how um, women are presented as victims often. And that was not the case in Africa, clearly. Um, and there's a whole wide range of things that go on in Africa. There's certainly some women who are victims. There's a lot of violence, for instance, in Kenya, violence against women, which is, discussed there's a lot of violence against women across africa but especially in certain societies and we have a chapter about violence against women in the book that's one of the things we cover so i guess when we get to this text let's bring it back to the text um we're trying to prevent present the wide variety within history and contemporary amongst women what happens um just a whole, we, we included North Africa, the whole geographic span of Africa as a continent. Um, and so I think that's a strength. And I think that, that one of the things one tries to get across in these African women's courses is the huge diversity that's involved and the breaking of stereotypes with a lot of things that, for instance, the independent property rights is breaking a stereotype for, about Western women who generally did not have that. In any case, um, so I'll just end there, let Wando take it. Since we're sort of um, bringing this back to the book, um, you know, when Claire and I decided to to collaborate on this book, and, and Claire, I don't know if you remember, because I remember the exact conversation in 2002, right? This book has been sort of... Um, percolating in our minds since 2002. Claire, you had invited me to participate in one of your NEH um, teachers' um, workshops. And I, I believe you had me speak about women, um, obviously it was on women in Africa. And I had um, talked about um, uh, women who practice polyandry in Africa. Right. And, you know, I remember you, um, you know, exclaiming, you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, I, I know about polyandry, but didn't realize, you know, that there were these communities. And, and I remember sitting that in that moment and saying, you know what, we should do this. And we really I mean, there were books on uh, African women that were out. Right. Writing um, a history of African women, a textbook is not an easy thing to do. Um, we certainly wanted to write or co-edit a textbook that would be accessible, right, to undergraduate students. We wanted to put together a textbook um, that would be usable in the American history classroom. And so the very manner in which we uh, decided 
on what chapters to include. The beginning of this textbook starts with images. This is the way that we're all Africanists, right? Sitting across from one another, right? Talking about this. This is the way we teach African history or African studies, right? You want to introduce this continent to students. You start talking about literature. You talk about film, right? This is the way that we started um, our book. Um, but we're also talking about stereotypes. We're, we're introducing, talking about these categories, right? Um, um, of African women's realities, whether it be like Claire's has talked about women and slavery, right? Um, one of the things that I think is one of my major contributions in my work, the way that I sort of, uh, conceptualize African uh, women's history and African history in general is that I firmly believe that you cannot tell the history of Africa by simply focusing in on the human realm. So in this book, you see these connections between the spiritual and the human, whether it be uh, indigenous African traditional religions, whether it be uh, uh, Christianity or Islam, we are touching on all of that. We are touching on sexualities, African sexualities. We are touching on various categories of, of, of what it means to be an African woman, right? The fact that sex and gender do not coincide, right? The fact that gender is flexible and fluid, right? And, and you have realities of, of female husbands, uh, female daughters, male priestesses, you know, that's the stuff, you know, that we sort of um, touched upon in this book that is extremely exciting. And this diversity of perspectives very much comes through in the text, which led me to want to ask you why you retained the category African women in the title. Because as you both note, it's a category that at once you contest, because in some ways it's something that's produced through a colonial history, the idea that there is an African woman as an identifiable category, in the same way that Africa as an identifiable category can be seen to have a very colonial history. And at the same time, it's an organizing principle that helps you and your authors and your readers explore a whole series of issues which are interconnected and and cohere with that category. So what kind of debates did you have about including that piece of African women in the title and and as an organizing principle of, of the book? Well, I think that both of us are quite familiar with postmodern theory and uh, the debates it has generated. And we did talk about that. We talked about using gender instead of women. Uh, but unfortunately, in some realms, I don't know, I thought about, uh, I've been to panels, for instance, about gender in Africa to discover that people were talking only about men, people we would classify as men. Um, and I think Nwanda already just eloquently explained that um, we may have started with African women as a category, but we exploded it. <laughs> you could take our chapters and go systematically through and, you know, um, get rid of the stereotypical woman, right, or whatever. Um, and most of us, I think, are not really into postmodern theory that much uh, within the book. But anyway, um, so I don't know. I'm going to hand this over to, to Nwando. Yeah, I mean, I, Claire, I, I, I totally agree with you. We, we had these conversations and in many ways it was sort of taking it back to the center. Um, you know, when Claire talks about and, and I know that you asked this question about the field and the evolution of the field, right? In the beginning, we, you know, you had a lot of texts that, you know, situated African women. Now we're, you know, a lot of us are talking about women and gender. And, and like Claire said, um, 
you know, it's that further diluting <laughs> to, you know, to get to a point where we're not even talking about women anymore. And so this was a conscious decision. Again, remember that this is a textbook that we um, decided to, to, to put together for an undergraduate audience. You know, that's really when you start thinking, who are our audience, right? We very much had an undergraduate uh, audience and maybe, yes, maybe uh, grad students as well, but very much for an undergraduate audience of students in the U.S. What, what are some of the things that we would like them to know about this continent, about these, about these you know, the, the people that inhabit the continent? And, you know, we, we just, you know, always sort of came back to this category. And as Claire has said, I mean, it's not, it's not a simplistic category. You know, we very much, I think, in the chapters in this book, in our introduction, defined what it is that we mean when we talk about an, Af you know, African women. Um, but I think it was very important for us to go back to the source, you know, um, that there is a need for this kind of book that really sort of privileges the realities of, 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 of African women. And we do stuff with gender in this book as well, right? Um, in, 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 in very exciting ways. And that's what we've done in this book. I also just kept thinking, you know, uh, as you know, slavery has been one of my big, big fields. And there were reasons that more African women were kept in Africa as slaves. And more men were sold into the Atlantic slave trade than women. Uh, Gender doesn't help us much as a category at that point. Well, one of the ways that um, it seems to me you exploded, that's the word you use, Claire, which I really like, uh, the kind of the what could be perceived as, say, maybe a unidimensional idea of the category of African women, which you successfully did, is by having such a variety, not only of of stories and, and disciplines, disciplinary perspectives, but also a real diversity in contributors. You have people who come from different generations, nationalities, race, gender, ethnicity, continents, religions, right? You have really such a, an incredible diversity of contributors. And yet what I found remarkable as I was reading these 16 chapters is that the it's not that the voice of each contributor disappears, but it's they're all very tightly written um, essays which are accessible and they they in some way have a similar voice, a similar overarching voice, which I, I imagine is the credit to the editors. So how did you um, work on getting the writing of the contributions to the, the pitch and the audience that you wanted? What is that process like? I would say for us, the... Um the first step for us um, when Claire and I decided to do this was it was so important to us. And I remember having this conversation. We both said that we wanted to put out a textbook that would be different from every other textbook on African women and gender that was out there. And one of our primary foci was to make sure that the contributors to this particular edition was extremely diverse. I mean, it just didn't happen, you know, just happened to happen that way. It was a conscious decision. And it was a conscious decision also, because the stuff that you notice in terms of generational, and sometimes what we did was pair um, scholars together and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if both of you wrote a chapter on such and such a thing, right? So for instance, our, our chapter on violence is written by two two different scholars that actually didn't know each other until we put them together. But it was, yes, it was a conscious decision for us to have a multiplicity of perspectives. So in this book, you not only have African women, we have African-American women, we have an African man, we have European women, American women, I mean, you name it. We've brought these wonderful scholars to the table you know, to help us decipher, to help us tell the history, um, you know, of, of, 
of African women. And, you know, uh, perhaps surprisingly, it wasn't actually that difficult to make these pieces fit together once we had decided upon who our uh, contributors would be, right? It just, it, it, it almost seamlessly started to fit together. Claire and I decided what chapters we wanted in the book, right? And then it was sort of deciding who would be the best person to write these chapters. And so it, it wasn't, there wasn't um, as much editing on the backside as perhaps you might think, right? It was just about Claire and I being able to articulate to our contributors what the inspiration behind this book was, what it, what it is that we were trying to achieve, and then sort of let them take it from there. Well, there actually was a fair amount of editing at one point because for economic reasons, the, the people at Wisconsin said that I had to, that we had to cut it by something like a fifth. That's true. And everybody had a lot to say, and it was important in what people were saying. And so it was extremely difficult at that stage. I was primarily doing it, and it was very difficult to both put in cross-references because, of course, the contributors are not seeing other people's articles. That's something we didn't do, which maybe we should have done, but time was of essence. But anyway, um, and so I had to both cut and include more things that were like cross-references where people were, you know, expressing something of a similar idea or delete things, you know, that where it was repetitive. There was some of that because people didn't know what other people were saying. That's the usual editorial, you know, responsibility in a book like this. And so, um, and I think that some of the things, some of the things turned out to be very fortuitous, okay? So Eileen Tripp, that, series that she was one of the editors of the Wisconsin series and she um they agreed at Wisconsin that they wanted us to put in a chapter about the diaspora the U.S. diaspora in particular and we got Cassandra Vaney very uh, generously agreed to do it and did a great job um and one of the issues was how does this fit in and Cassandra had questions about that uh, how does this fit into and we had a long discussion about it and she said, yes, okay, I see how it fits in. And then we had Elizabeth Perigold, who wrote uh, one of the, uh, who agreed to to uh, deal with literature, okay. She wrote the literature representations chapter. And when she chose the novels she was going to analyze, she decided to, two of them, I believe, were uh, North African uh, and they were about the French diaspora, the diaspora, what was going on in France. And th those things paired up beautifully, right, and sort of bookended it in a way uh, on that topic. And I think, therefore, also contributed something new to the studies of the diaspora. So um, that's an unusual side of, of this book, actually. So, you know, editing's complicated and sometimes um great things can come out of it. I thought that was one of the things that really came forward. But anyway. Another um, aspect of the book that I found pretty innovative, and, and Claire, I know when we spoke earlier, you were really pleased with this. You decided to divide the book into four sections. So the first one is representations of and by African women. The second is religion and politics. The third, economics and society. And the fourth, love, marriage, and women's bodies. But this, to begin the book with the idea of representation and to talk about how it was being, uh, how, what authors and producers of uh, cinema were contesting as, as stereotypes and how they were putting forth different narratives about African women. So it seems to me very unique to have begun this textbook with this idea of representation. Would you like to kind of discuss how you came to this? It's quite original. Maybe Wando. Yeah, again, it was, you know, deciding who 
you know, what, who's our audience? That's what, you know, when people start writing um, books or articles, you, you have to have an audience in mind. And for us, it was, you know, the undergraduate students in an American classroom. And for those of us who are professors who've taught, you know, um, African history, women's history, right? I've been doing this for the past 25 years. Um, you begin to uh, realize what some of the hiccups, you know, that we experience in the classroom. You know, the average American student walks into an African history class thinking that they really don't know that much about Africa. I, you know, I have this wonderful activity that I do with my students where I, where I ask them, you know, what is it that you know about Africa? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Africa? And, you know, the challenge for us uh, professors is that, in fact, the average American student knows much more about Africa than they actually think that they do know, right? But the problem for those of us that teach about African worlds and African societies is that that which the American student knows oftentimes is problematic, right? They are receiving their information about Africa from the TV, from the internet, from you name it. They are being inundated with images about Africa. And so the problem becomes that those images that they know, you know, that they think they know about Africa are extremely problematic, right? And so in order for your students to start to hear you when you're talking and really sort of introducing the African world, you have to deal with representation. And that's why, you know, I think from the very beginning, Claire and I knew that we were going to have a first part that started with representations of and by. So the of, right, is the usual representations that we are all inundated um, with and by. But we also wanted to counter that with how, how is it that African women themselves, you know, how do they represent themselves and just oppose those two things? So that was, that was extremely important for us to do. Again, thinking about who is the audience, so who is the audience that we were writing for? And it was very much, I mean, we weren't writing this not to have this adopted in the you know, undergraduate classroom. We really wanted to make this text as accessible as we possibly could for undergraduate students in the way in which they learn about Africa and the world. And the representation chapters, um, both, of course, they focus on uh, creativity by African women in particular, and also men. And they, it would have been relatively easy, and I think most of us could write chapters where all it is is critique of Western representations. So that's the way they both start. But then they focus and prioritize how people see themselves and how, how people analyze their own societies and so on. And I think that's extremely important. And I think it also makes it a bit unusual because I think to do both in one chapter, one short chapter was difficult. And I think both of the contributors did a great job of doing that. Um, we also have, I think that the text is unusual. Also, the fact that we have the chapter on religion, on religious fundamentalisms in particular, that includes Islam, Christianity, and indigenous religions done by a book prize winner, by Usaina Alidu. Um, and she did a great job of that. Uh, everyone did a really fabulous job, I thought, and put a lot of energy into it. Um, so we, I think we're very pleased. I don't want to prioritize some at the expense of others at all. Um, you and I discussed, at least the, the uh, love chapter, which is a very interesting chapter, really draws a lot on novels, which again sort of ties it back to the novels at the beginning, in a way, uh, in, the, in the first chapter. Uh, so lots of sort of interrelationships between the chapters. And when I was editing and trying to put in the interrelationships, I was trying to point that out. Um, and once in a while, like one time, I think only I asked someone to add something to a chapter because it was something we really had, no one had covered, and I thought it was important. She was very happy to do so, and that, that's great, too. Um, you know, it, it's been, it's complicated. This book is complicated and more complicated than I thought it was going to be. 
and I think that's really good. Um, and the, the, it does hang together, as you say, Elisa. Uh, and I'm very happy about that. Well, in addition to this representation, you know, kind of metaphorical, you also have images that accompany each chapter, which, like you said, Wando, are very helpful to kind of open up a topic for uh, a non-specialist audience, but even for a specialist audience. And um, so I wanted to spotlight two of the images that accompany the chapters. One, in the last chapter on health, there's a photograph of Shoana Solomon, who is uh, a young Liberian woman who started a social media campaign to uh, combat the stigma around Ebola. And she's holding a piece of paper that says, I am Liberian, not a virus. And she's looking away from the camera. And, and this image, quite powerful, somehow even more powerful when it you contrast it with the image that accompanies the chapter on, on violence. And that image is just a blank box. And there's a note under that which says, ethical concerns prevent showing here a 2009 photo of Mary, not her real name, a Liberian nine-year-old whose buttocks was a mass of scars inflicted by her father. Let this space stand for all those whose lives have been destroyed by violence in Africa and elsewhere, especially women and girls. What was the conversation around uh, that photograph? Oh yeah. boy, I, yeah, yeah. I better answer that one, I think. Um, Henry is a friend and, and one of, uh, got her PhD with me at Ohio State, the author, one of the authors of the Violence Against Women chapter. And we discussed it extensively, uh, that photograph. And there were, interestingly, the discussion began with a technical, it was simply technical and ethical. You have to get permission from people to use their photographs. And she could not. She did not know what had happened to Mary. And um, she would have had to go back, which she couldn't afford at the time. She would have had to go back to try and find her. And there had been no continuing communication between her and Mary's family. For obvious reasons, Mary was only a nine-year-old when Henry met her. Um, I believe that's right. And so then we talked about it at length and realized that rather than showing that really awful photograph which sticks in my mind, um, it would be perhaps more powerful to do exactly what you just pointed out. And the fact, even the fact that we have a chapter on violence against women is very unusual for a textbook on African women. I don't think anyone's done that before, but we felt, um, and it also reflects a change in sort of the evolution of women's studies, of gender studies, and so on. And so um, we thought it was very important to, to do that. Um, and that's where we ended up. Yeah, for me, I, I remember, you know, I didn't have a personal connection with uh, either of the authors of that chapter, but I remember when I saw the image, um, the first thing that uh, came to mind for me as an African woman was there's no way under the sun we're using this image, given the fact that this was a child. Um, you know, I, for me, I immediately thought about all of the po politics surrounding. Now, if this were a Caucasian child who was about the same age, would we be exposing this child? Um, you know, does this child know that um, her picture is being used in this manner? You know, uh, and this goes beyond violence. You know, it, it, it really sort of speaks to uh, the propensity for researchers to use African bodies as props. You know, you, you, you land in Africa, you get out of the plane, and you start taking pictures of people you don't know. And, and it's almost as though that's okay because it's Africa. And I always say to my students, you know, would you, for instance, leave your homes Go to one of the, you know, major streets, take out your camera and start clipping, you know, taking pictures of strangers. You wouldn't do it in the U.S. So what makes you think that you have the right to do that when you go to Africa? Right. So for me, it was really about protecting, making sure 
that we protected the innocence of this 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 nine year you know year old Jews young child, and uh, and for me it you know the not having an image for me was infinitely much more powerful with regards to what it was that we were trying to express than having that horrific the horrific image you know that what Claire yeah still sort of sticks in my mind but but yeah we we did have. Um, some extensive conversations about it, and I'm glad that we we ended up where we, we we ended up, right? And everybody was in agreement about um, the power of leaving that page bare. Because the other images, we asked uh, authors to to select an image that spoke to the chapter, you know, that they were writing. So everybody was able to sort of pick out one image that started their chapter, and um, not having an image in that chapter and letting letting this 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 open space right speak to the violence in our minds were extremely powerful. Well, and Henry had taken the picture, of course, herself, and she uh, the child was not a stranger to her. She had her story, obviously. Um, but the saddest thing at the end of that story was that that she and I discussed was that uh, in the story that. It's not a story. I mean, it's her life. And at the end of what Henry knew about her, this child had been returned to the father who had done that to her. At the end of the father who had jailed for beating her and almost killing her. And then she was returned. Her custody was returned to him. And Henry did not think that she was still alive. So... Well, I think that the blank image is deeply arresting. And it certainly marked me because as you go through the book, you, you read each chapter, each chapter has an interesting image, and then you reach that and you're stopped kind of dead in your tracks. And you, you pause and you you do stand back and think about um, about the people that would have been in the image or another image associated with that chapter. So I applaud you for that, I think, very just a decision. In, in addition to these images, another feature of the book, which is unusual for an edited volume, particularly an edited volume meant you know, probably primarily for, for teaching, for classrooms, is that there's poetry in the volume. There's poetry, uh, a poem that begins and that also concludes the volume. And in this poem, uh, we find the title of the volume, Holding the World Together. And I wondered, maybe Claire, if you could tell us the story behind how you contacted the poet or how the poem became incorporated in the text. Oh, actually, that's a rather interesting story. Um, we began, the working title that we used most of the time was a pretty workaday title, and it's basically the subtitle. Of the, of the book at this point. Um, and uh, Abenabusia is the uh, poet involved and dramatist and also a, a writer of academic type articles. And she was slated to do, I believe, the images, the representations chapter, the literature one. And basically, but that's not where she is right now basically. And she has been concentrating more on poetry. And so we talked with her extensively. And she said, she volunteered, she said that she would rather do a poem about the book. And, and when we got into that, and she did a first draft, and then we changed the title. Okay, well, we, we, we got the first title, the holding the world together part. And Nwando and I discussed that a lot, too, because it has a double meaning in English, right? It can mean that you're holding something together physically, right? That you're, you're keeping it from falling apart. But it can also mean you're sort of holding it up in a way. Um, and so, uh, and that women support the world, the African world, if you will, or the world entire, entire world. 
anyway. And so uh, Abena is, it's, I don't have words for her talent. I mean, she's absolutely wonderful. So she changed the poem. And I think she liked the second, the first title better also. And and she came up with, with what we have. And we decided to, with consultation with her, to use it the way we did, which is use it at the very beginning and then use it at the end to sort of conclude it. And so that's what we did, rather than writing a whatever post thing ourselves. And I think it's more effective. Well, it's a very lovely poem. And Wanda, I hoped that you might be able to read its concluding stanza for us as we conclude this interview. I would love to. Um, you know, like Claire said, Abena Boussiev, you know, is just an uh, incredibly talented poet. And uh, we are just uh, just so lucky to have had her, um, you know, write a poem for, for our volume. Holding the world together. Asking, who loves or loves me not, and who calls me home? Whose names or names me not, and who calls me out? Who cheats and beats and shouts? Who harms my soul? Who shares in the care to transform and to make me whole? These are our stories. Oh, so beautiful. We all need more poetry in our lives. I'm absolutely convinced. Thank you both so much for recording this interview and for speaking about this beautiful book, which I'll be using to teach um, my history of African women courses. And I urge people to take a look at and include in all of their African history and courses on women's history and gender studies. Thank you so much Thank for you having so much. us. Thank you so much for your interest and Keep, keep up the good work. Yes, thanks to you both.